your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. As we're working this year through the book of 1 Corinthians, we come to a section known probably inside of your scripture as a Thanksgiving section there in Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 through 9. If you are new to Mission, my name is Eric Baker and I am the teaching pastor here at Mission Church and we just want to thank you guys for gathering with us. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach out probably in front of you and in the sleeve uh, in front of you on the chair pew in front of you there may be a bible there uh, please take that as our gift uh, from us to you if you plan on being with us throughout this series then at the info table there should be a uh, a copy of first corinthians that looks like this this is our gift to you as well uh, inside of it it allows for you to kind of follow along with what i'm going to be reading with and what translation i'm going to be reading from as well as an opportunity for you to take notes uh, here in a couple of weeks, our missional communities, which is our version of small groups here at Mission Church, will be kicking off. And so if you are uh, looking to get involved, uh, find out more information about Mission Church, uh, then man, I would encourage you to join our missional communities. You can see uh, by, or join one of those by coming and talk to myself or Pastor Todd or Pastor Justin, and we'd love to get you hooked up uh, with one of those. So uh, with your word in your hand or on your device, please turn with me there to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be covering four verses here uh, today and this is the word of the Lord first Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 4 through 9 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. In this sermon series, through the letter of 1 Corinthians, we have titled it, Fight the Drift. And just to remind you of what we're talking about when we're discussing the idea of fight the drift, it's very reflective of the song that we just sang that says that we are prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We claim to be followers of Jesus and yet we are daily either drifting toward the person and work of Jesus or we are drifting away from the person and work of Jesus. We are um, just, again, because of the sinfulness that is within us, are, are prone to do those very things. And we call that the drift. That we are, if Jesus is our standard, if Jesus is the way of life, if Jesus is King and Lord, then our, often our desires are not of the things of God, of the things of Christ, and we are prone to drift toward what we want, that you and I want to be God, and we want to be goddesses, even if we don't recognize it or realize it. And so we are reminded in this letter, in 1 Corinthians, to fight that drift. When we're talking about this, it's being um, aware of that the drift within us, and we're all prone to drift toward different sins and different things that are away from God, but it's this recognition that, that you and I are deceived by our own and our old way of thinking. 
That even before we came to Christ, that you and I, again, were prone towards certain sins, certain things that disobeyed God, and that even after becoming Christians, though we have been given a new nature, that we often find ourselves, especially in the midst of chaos, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sickness and suffering, in the midst of loneliness, that we begin to drift toward not the things of God, not His Word, not His church, uh, not praying, not proclaiming, evangelizing, engaging in missions, not giving of our time, talent, and treasure, but, but rather in our sickness, in our suffering, in our pain, in our suffering sorrow in our loneliness are prone towards things that ultimately will only numb whatever we're going through for a moment and that is part of understanding what it means to be in this drift as Christians we are encouraged to fight the good fight to fight against the drift that was in us so when we're talking about fighting the drift, it's fighting in Christ, with Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not you lacing up your bootstraps even tighter in you know, just this, this gumption that you can dwell within you. But it's relying even more in your pursuit of Christ to make war against your sin. As it's been said by the Puritans, either you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so we see this drift taking place within the church that is in this city, this ancient city called Corinth. And Paul, who planted this church some years ago, is writing them to encourage them to get back on track, to come back to the person and work of Jesus, to act and be in Christ as they were once called to be and called to act. See, as we survey the landscape of the American church, if we're really honest, and maybe you're not nerdy like I am about these things, but I try to keep a tab on what is taking place within the American church. And as you survey statistics locally and globally, but specifically within the United States of America, um, the American church seems and appears to be in what is called a decline. Uh, less and less people will, if you take a census and you mark what religion you are, less and less people are not saying they're agnostic or atheist. They would often say that they're spiritual, but they would no longer qualify themselves as being a Christian. Church attendance continues to wane and to go down in many areas and in many churches within the United States. Many people who claim to be followers of Jesus no longer believe that Jesus is the only way. They no longer believe that Jesus and His Word is the authority. That Genesis to Revelation, the very Word of God, they, they no longer believe that that is the authority of their life, but that it's a, a good book of good morals, it's a good guide, a good map for you and I to live our lives in reflection of it. But to say that it is the authority and the Word of God is something that, that even many people who claim to be followers of Jesus no longer believe. Amongst that, you'll now see, and as you, again, survey the landscape, specifically within the American church, is that many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, uh, it's not only that they are um, engaged in sin, but they're now promoting sin and what the scripture often declares as being sin um, and disobedience, they no longer believe that it is. 
that God, above all things, is love. And so since God is love, then he is accepting of all sorts of people and all sorts of things. And, there, and what's difficult about that is that there is some truth in that. But it also, in the hands of sin, Satan, and death, becomes very deceptive. As one believes that they can live, promote, and proclaim that sin is no longer evil, the Bible would even speak even to that end. This church, the church, especially in America, the one that we are a part of, holistically speaking, what is called the church, has drifted very far from what is the will of God, from the person of God, from the person and work of Jesus, from the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But this is not new to America. This is also true of the church that is in Corinth. In Corinth and in America, people who claim to be followers of Jesus have often drifted toward isolation. They've drifted toward arrogance. They've drifted and divided over who they're going to follow. Christians sue each other. They ignore the poor. They've become sexually immoral. They're participating in sin and calling it good. They're ignoring the sins of their own hearts and of the Christ-like community. This is very reflective of what we're seeing inside the United States of America. But again, this is not new to America. We see this inside of this church. And Paul is going to spend the rest of this letter diving into and revealing problems that are found within this church and then how the gospel triumphs over each one of those issues. There are serious problems in Corinth. And there are serious problems within the American church as a whole. And yet... God is faithful. God is faithful even in the midst of all of those things. Paul knows exactly what is taking place inside the church at Corinth. And there are some things that we're going to get into that you can't, you're going to be sitting there, especially astonished if you have never read the letter of the Corinthians before, astonished that these people are claiming to be followers of Jesus and a part of a church, and yet they're participating in numerous evils. Paul knows all of this. He has been given eyewitnesses accounts of all of the evil that is taking place within this church. And yet, what does Paul do here and establish in verses 4 through 9? Where is his focus? His focus is keeping his eyes on Jesus even in the midst of a church that has drifted far from him. If you were to know all of these things, how would you respond? Um, I have a tendency, I can be quick to jump on something without clearly thinking about um, everything that needs to be addressed. Paul, again, he is going to labor. 
He's already sent one letter to these people. This is actually his second letter to them. He's going to write another letter to them. He longs to see these people, to address them face to face. And yet, before he goes into this, he is about to lovingly scold these people. He's about to reveal and just lay bare the sin that is within this church. But before he does it, he centers himself and centers the church on what is most important, and that is the person and work of Jesus. In this passage, we see several different things that God is going to talk about through the Apostle Paul about this church. In verse 4, what does Paul do? He says, man, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. These are wayward children. They're wayward Christians. And yet, what does Paul start with? I thank God for you. Do you ever thank God for all the troublemakers that are in your life? you ever thank God for the disobedient child? And yet, Paul illustrates to us this powerful thing that Paul gives thanks be to God for. The church is existing in Corinth, and the church is existing in Bowling Green, Kentucky today. Why? Because of the grace of God. Because of the grace and the mercy of God. All of this is a gift from God himself through the person and work of Jesus. Paul would go on to say, what is this in verse 5? That in every way you were enriched in him. Again, don't lose sight to what we're about to see over the next several months of all of the chaos and confusion and the drifting that is taking place. And yet Paul says, man, I thank God for you. Wicked, evil church is really what they are. This church that has gone wild. And yet, God's, er, yet Paul says, man, I thank God for you. You have been richly blessed by the grace and the mercy of God through the person and work of Jesus. What is grace? Well, grace is a, a Christian word that, man, we love to sing about. We love to sling around. All we want is grace. And, and that is truly a great thing to want and to need. Grace is unmerited favor. If grace was something that this church in Corinth could earn and get, then they would not get it. If it was something that they could earn and achieve by their good works and, and their good will, that if we're just good people, then God will show us favor. And yet that is the opposite of what we see in the gospel. What makes Christianity different than all other religions is that all other religions are going to tell you and point you to a certain way of living in order to be good enough that at the end of time, when you stand before the Creator, whoever that may be, then you will have a, enough goods in your good bucket that far outweigh the bads in your life. And yet the gospel of Jesus totally turns this on its head. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is one that, that we remain in favor of God, not because of our faithfulness and what we have done, but rather in the faithfulness in the person and work of Jesus. That all that needed to be merited could not be merited by you and I, brother and sister. It could only be achieved by God himself, God in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. And Paul, right here in the ministry, he knows, man, I'm about to have a very, very tough conversation. But I thank God that in the midst of all of this, that you stand under the never-ceasing, ever-flowing grace fountain that comes from Jesus himself. They're spiritually rich. You and I are spiritually rich. As it has been said, all that is in Christ's account has been accredited to yours and mine who are in Christ Jesus. Though we stand in our own works and in our own merits, spiritually bankrupt. There is a fountain that can never dry up. A fountain that will never cease to flow as the person and work of Christ, the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings. All of the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, then all of that has been miraculously poured onto you. Not just once but continually, forever and ever and ever. And that's why the last word of the book of Revelation is, Amen. Amen. Because of Christ. We cannot take credit for our spiritual wealth. It is a gift. We see also in this passage as we continue there in, what is it, verse 5, that, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ who was for, confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Brothers and sisters, God has given us spiritual gifts. Every one of you in here, if you are in Christ, have been given spiritual gifts gifts. Now we're going to see later on, so I'm not going to dwell on this point too much today, but we're going to see later on the, the blessings and the difficulties of what that means. That they were meant to stir the people within the church. And you've got to be a part of the church to experience and to share your spiritual gifts that we see inside the scripture. But namely, some of the most important, if not the most important, are two of those gifts that we see here in this very passage that speaks about the very words, the very speech, that God has given you the words. Have you ever said this before? As a Christian, I just simply don't know what to say to people. No, brothers and sisters. We've been given every word. We've been given every word in Jesus. We've been given every word in His very word to know what to say. We have been given true knowledge. There is absolute truth and it is the word of God. He has given it to us. It is complete. It is perfect. It is the inerrant word of God. 
It is absolutely correct. Every portion of it, every sentence, every verse, every chapter has been gifted to you and I. What a blessed moment in time it is for you and I to be on this side of the cross and resurrection, but also on this side of the Word of God being written. That you and I can have it in our hands. The church has been given spiritual gifts. Now, it's important to understand what those are. It's, a, it's important for us to get what they mean in regards to what the Scripture describes about them. And we'll cover that as we go in this letter. The next thing that we see there in verse 8, it says, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Jesus will sustain you to the end. Now, as a kid, when I would hear people talking about the return of Jesus, that used to freak me out. I can remember being in something called children's church. Anybody ever go to children's church when you were a kid? Right? So they would have like adults, they would do the, the, the welcome like what we do. They would sing some songs and then occasionally uh, in the small church that I grew up in, they would send all the children out for children's church. Everybody follow me? And you would go and it would be like a Sunday school class for kids. We usually end up playing a lot of red light, green light, uh, and a lot of mother may I, all right? But occasionally we would hear Bible stories. And for whatever reason, I remember, I don't remember many of any of them besides the games. Um, but I remember as probably even before I could read, because I just learned that like when I went to college, um, that when I was really small, um, someone telling me about Jesus coming back. As a very young child. And how that there was this thing called the mark of the beast, Right? That you don't want to get a barcode stuck on your forehead or on the back of your neck. Because if that's the mark of the beast, right? That Ronald Reagan, that Ronald has three R names, they all have six letters in them. And for years, people thought that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And I remember being told all of these scary things about the return of Jesus. Where I remember even praying as a small kid, Jesus, don't come back. Don't come back. I mean, scary stories. I remember being told that, that, that Jesus was going to come back and that they were going to come to our house and they would go, these Satan worshipers would come, these people after the beast, and they would come door after door and they would ask your parents, are they Christians? And if your parents said they were Christians, then little kids, they were going to rip your parents out of your house and take you away. Be encouraged, children. Right? That's what I was talking growing up. And so being scared to death of the return of Jesus. For those of us who are in Christ, let, let me clear this up. Everyone here, friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. And for some of us, it is the greatest of days. 
For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we are, have been shown His grace and His mercy, we should be praying, Lord Jesus, let it be today. May there be a revival across this land where Your Spirit sweeps from nation to nation, from city to city. Let the Gospel be proclaimed on whatever today's day is in such a way that an outpouring of Your Spirit saves, sanctifies, fills people with the Holy Spirit who are in Christ and then Jesus come back. We should be praying that to, to the very marrow of our bones. We rejoice. And yet if you are not in Christ, that is a terrible, scary day. I don't believe that it's a day like what I was told as a small child. It's actually worse. Are you in Christ? Jesus is coming. And when we see this passage, notice that as Paul writes this to these sinful Christians, he, he's writing them in such a way that he's rejoicing in it. That this is great news. I mean, listen to this. God will sustain you. Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord's Jesus. That's judgment day. When Jesus comes back for those who are in Christ in the church, then they, they will stand and be sustained until that end. They will stand before God. Often we see it translated in this passage, the term guiltless there, that they are blameless. That for those of us who are in Jesus, when, when He comes back, that they're going to stand blameless because of Christ Jesus. You've been washed in the blood of Christ. We see this beautiful picture. And again, don't forget the context. Are these people blameless? Not practically. But because of the grace and the mercy of God. Because of His compassion upon them, what do we see taking place? That one day, Jesus will return. And yet, this corrupt, drifted away church, this church that is involved in all sorts of immorality, who we hope and pray by the end of this story and by the end of the series, we hope and pray that they, they come back to Christ, which is the picture of what it means to be in Christ and to fight the drift. That we are prone to wonder. And yet, God's irresistible grace draws us back to Him. In this passage, it tells us of this beautiful picture that Jesus will preserve the true church until He returns. Those whom Jesus saves cannot lose their salvation. Many counterfeit Christians and churches will pass away, but the true church will be preserved until the return of Jesus. Paul starts here in a very hopeless, as he surveys what's taking place inside the city, he keeps his focus on the person and work of Jesus, knowing that within this church there is the true church within this corruptness there is true Christians and Jesus will keep them he will sustain the church when a person is truly saved they're filled with the Holy Spirit they've been made alive they are given new hearts they're given a new will and once a person is born again in Christ they can't be un born. This is John chapter 3, is it not? This is the beauty for those of us who have truly been saved. Then you are saved indeed. 
You cannot lose it because Jesus promises that he will not lose any that the Father has given him. We continue this passage there in verse 9 that says God is faithful. That God is faithful in verse 9. When it's speaking about faithfulness, what is it declaring? What is it saying about God? It's, it's declaring something about his character. It's declaring something about who he is, not just simply something that he is able to do, but rather what he is able to do is stemming forth from his very being. Speaking of God as faithful is, is talking about the reliability of God, the trustworthiness of God, that God is dependable. Within leadership studies, we talk about often uh, this acronym that's called do what you say you will do. Anybody struggle with that? Anybody 100% at doing what you say you're going to do? A husband should never raise your hand in here. Your wife's keeping tabs. All right. We weave in and out of that, don't we? We can not always be dependable. And yet, what is the Bible declaring about God? He's declaring that He is reliable. That He is trustworthy. That God Himself, and only God Himself, is the dependable one. Like you can count on what He says to be true. We're going to stand before God in the judgment seat of Christ, blameless, not again because of our faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Like we can depend on that. There's much that is taking place in the world that we, I mean, we just simply, if we're honest, we have no idea. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who to rely on. And yet the Bible reminds us that God is the faithful one. That He is the reliable one. That He is the one that we can depend on when we cannot depend on anything else. When all else fails, what do we do? We cling to God Almighty. We cling to the person of God. We cling to the person and the promises of God. Even when we survey, even in our own homes, our neighborhoods, our city, our state, our country, our world. When we survey those things, when we look at the news that is inside of the world, it seems to be a hopeless and a dark place. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we cling to a dependable, faithful God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, he says, this is speaking of God, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There for a while people were saying, won't he do it? Yes, he will. If it is according to his will and his good pleasure, then one thing that you can bank on, he will do it. He is not like the husband who you've asked, ladies, time and time and time again to take out the trash. And he has said, I'll take it out. I'll take it out. I'll take it out. I'll take it out. And it never gets taken out. If he's smart, he dictates that to an, uh, one of your children, right? I told them to do it. God isn't like that. He's dependable. He is reliable. He is our faithful God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I love this conclusion, the doxology at the end of this little letter called Jude. 
there's this powerful little paragraph that we should commit to memory. Especially in the darkest of moments and times. Verse 24 of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the only reason why you and I aren't splitting hell open itself because of our sin is because of Him. There is no good in you apart from Christ. There is no righteous deed in you and I apart from Christ. And yet He is gracious. And yet He is merciful. It is His joy to keep you and I from stumbling into this present darkness. Our security, brothers and sisters in Christ, cannot be found in the chaos around us. Even within... The church. More and more pastors are killing themselves. More and more churches are splitting. More and more pastors and leaders within churches. I just read another one this, this last week of a huge mega church prosperity gospel guy who um, ended up, you know, uh, cheating on his wife. The church is often destroyed, especially in America, not from the outside of people coming in, but it's, it's because of what's taking place on the inside, which we're going to talk a lot about next week. And yet, what does Paul remind us of? You cannot put your hope in what you see. We put our hope in a faithful God. We put our hope in a faithful Jesus. There have been times within Mission Church existence over this last, this is working on the ninth year. So next year, y'all get ready. We're going to party even for some reformed people, right? We're going we're to party next year. We're going to figure out what that means for us. But we're going to figure it out. It's probably like lots of polka or I don't know what it'll be. But uh, we're going to figure out what does it mean for us to truly celebrate not what we have achieved, but what God has achieved in spite of us. But that does not mean that there has not been wearisome days in the life of this church. There have been days where when all we could do, especially me and Pastor Justin in the early days, was we would rather, we gathered in a, uh, my, my wife's classroom to pray. We all worked at a school and, and me and Pastor Justin would gather and lay on the floor in a dirty classroom praying that God would give us one more week. Because we didn't know if we'd make it. Lord, give us one more week. We don't have any money. We got very little people. 
There was a season where it seemed like everything that came out of my mouth made somebody mad. Man, they love Pastor Justin. <laughs> there are times it's like, man, let's just let's just quit. That was us looking at us. And yet when we look to Christ, He is gracious. He is faithful. He will sustain His children. He will sustain His church in such a way that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You cannot snuff out. You cannot cancel the church of God. It is His. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, preacher from the 1800s, to be called by the faithful God is the guarantee of everlasting salvation. It's a reflection of what we see inside of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Every moment of joy and every heartbreak is not a wasted moment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He is molding you. He is shaping you. You can't ignore what you're going through. But brothers and sisters, keep our eyes on Christ. Fight the drift to look at the waves. And focus on Him. Because he is faithful. Paul, knowing all that he knows about this church at Corinth, is going to speak to each one of their issues, but notice where he starts. He starts with hope. Not in what he sees in that very moment, but with the character of Christ. The church is God's. It belongs to Christ. Paul looks at the chaos surrounding these people whom he loves, and he remembers God is faithful. For Paul, there was no giving up on the church. To be a Christian is to belong to Christ, is to belong to the local and to the global church. Paul is not going to give up on the church because God himself, Christ himself, is a faithful husband that refuses to give up on her as well. That is why we can join with people for a very long time and singing great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness Lord unto me God is way more committed to the church than you and I are. He's a lot less frustrated and quick to leave it than we are. We're finicky, non-reliable, <laughs> not dependent. And yet God loves the church so much that He gave His Son 
And He bought the church with His own blood. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of an almighty, gracious, loving God. Insomuch that He would call us, as He does in verse 9, into fellowship. What is that? The term fellowship is koinonia. And it means much more than, than you and a group of guys sitting down at the local bar drinking a really dark beer talking about Jesus. It's more than, than you and your, your girlfriend sipping some Spencer's coffee and, and talking about the new study that's come out. All those things are great and can be beneficial for some. But fellowship goes into this understanding of a covenant partnership with Jesus and with His church. He's talking there and calling us to this, this idea of, of membership and of covenant membership. Of covenant partnership. When you really begin to study those words, it goes beyond just having a good meal with each other. It is no, it's this commitment to this body of Christ, to the church that is Christ, or that is in Christ. It's why we use here at Mission the church covenant membership or ministry partnership. All of that is encompassed in an actual word that we see inside of the Scripture called koinonia that is often, again, translated fellowship. You can't have fellowship with Jesus and apart from His church while being isolated. No, He calls us. He loves this group of people. As one of the commentators says, the goal of God's calling is that Christians may be a sanctified people who belong to His church and together have covenant participation with Christ. In these verse nine, nine verses that we've seen in this passage here this morning, Jesus is mentioned nine times. Why? Because the centrality of your life and the centrality of the church is found only in the person and the work of Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. And if we're all about Jesus, then man, we're all about His church. And in the midst of our waywardness, in the midst of our kind of relational, just kind of bipolarness all over the place, all over the map, God is reminding us here at the very beginning, before we spend several months, and some of you guys are going to be like, ooh, like this, this is tough. As we go through these things, we cannot lose focus of Jesus. Cannot lose focus as we're talking about women wearing headdresses. Say that one for Mother's Day. Right? Or people getting drunk on the communion wine. Or the immorality that we... It's going to be really easy. Oh man, every time that we come here, we're just hearing about how bad these people are and in retrospect, how, how bad I am. And yet Paul is stating from the very beginning, yes, it has gone wayward, it has drifted, but God is faithful. Because Jesus is the one that never drifts. Jesus is the one that never drifts. With his arms out wide, he held the line against sin, Satan, and death. 
because he loves the church that much. With his blood, you and I become the spotless lambs of God. And this truth today reminds us to a posture of humility because we know each other. And yet he remains. Like Jesus knows everything about this church. Jesus knows everything that you've done this week. Every thought that you have had. And yet, if you are in Christ, you will stand before God one day holy and blameless and righteous and pure and perfect. But what will you know? That you are completely unworthy of all of those things. And so the very crowns that you have given as the cherubims and seraphims, as the, the, the martyrs and the witnesses and the great cloud of witnesses, they worship God. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that people begin to take off their crowns and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Because that crown is worth absolutely nothing compared to knowing the faithfulness of an almighty God. Do you know Him?